Hello, and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder and designer of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Each episode, we take you to meet someone whose work, study, creation, or simply life ethos inspires the world of our collections. We invite you to come along on this journey as we meet the makers and thinkers whose contributions have shaped the handmade jewellery we create and the lives we live while wearing it. Over the past years, I have found twin passions in learning the Arabic language and advocating for Palestinian liberation. A mentor and teacher who helped to guide me in this journey is Yusuf Al-Rimawi, a lecturer, political advisor and commentator, editor and friend. We find pockets of happiness in our daily life and you might be surprised because how do you manage to smile or to just live an ordinary life? You are continuously over and over and over again subjugated to injustice for now more than 73 years. We discussed the beauty of Arabic as a language, its unique expressiveness, and his experience as part of the Palestinian diaspora. So we met at Melbourne University when I was attempting to learn your mother tongue, Arabic. That was a challenging subject, but amazing. I used to have dreams about Arabic grammar, I remember, and I had like a year-long eye twitch just from... <laughs> just from studying so hard. Um, but yeah, I would love to do Arabic I, I classes love, again. Particularly the first semester, students who continue, let's say, to the second and third year, what happens in the first semester stays forever because... The trauma. <laughs> trauma, but also the reward. Totally. You start, you know, reading from right to left start opening up conversations. People open up. People cheer up when, when you speak their first language. So when you pull up a word at, let's say, Sidar Bakery or uh, Sydney Road uh, I would like restaurant. to buy the mishmish. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, we don't have it, but I'm impressed. <laughs> totally. So first of all, I guess the best place to start with you is your background. Yeah. Well, I would like first to say thank you, Olivia, for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Oh, thanks, Yusuf. And to talk to your audience. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and it's I'm a pleasure I'm looking forward to, to talking, to having this conversation. My background, I was born in 1974 in Jordan to Palestinian parents. Both parents fled Palestine in '48. My mother's family fled to the north, to Syria. My father's family fled to the east, to West Bank, and subsequently to Jordan. And they met when dad was in his uh, university uh, years in Syria. And they got married in 72, and I'm the second boy in the family. Uh, and I was born in their holiday, so I ruined their holiday. <laughs> summer holiday, summer. Uh, that's, that, that's what happens when you are in July yeah. in the Arab world. So my upbringing and my identity is a bit of a mosaic, being a Palestinian and uh, Palestinian Jordanian, Palestinian Syrian, but also having grown up in Saudi Arabia. And growing up in Saudi Arabia itself is a multicultural experience mm. because Saudi Arabia was home for expatriates from all around the world, particularly the Palestinians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, 
so you get to know others. But uh, one thing I also want to give credit for is the education system in Saudi Arabia in the 80s, while it was very conservative in terms of religious education, but the side product of it, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you understand <laughs> theology mm. from its root. And also, the another good byproduct is Arabic language, because Arabic language is important to Islamic studies. Uh, and here we go. I became a teacher of Arabic, thanks to the strong education in Saudi Arabia. Amazing. Can you give us, like, a, a, obviously we could do 45 hours on just that topic, but Part could you one. give us, like, um, a very brief overview of the spread of the Arabic language? What constitutes or what makes an Arab today is if your country is a member of the Arab League. Yeah. So there is a political umbrella, but that's not the only definition. In the Arab League, there are 22 countries. And of course, because it's a political umbrella, it started in 45 with nine countries. And then upon every, every uh, subsequent country that gets independence from colonial uh, France or colonial Britain or colonial Italy, uh, then they choose to join uh, the newly born Arab League. So currently we do have uh, 22 countries. Wow. And these 22 countries extend from the east, from as east in Oman, in the Gulf, to the west, uh, to Mauritania. So the yeah. square kilometer of the Arab world is 14 million oh my gosh. square kilometers. It's That's nearly huge. double double Australia. Yeah, and Australia that. is mostly empty. So <laughs> we're talking about 14 million Square kilometers of highly populated, uh, not as highly in every, because we do have also Saudi Arabia and Algeria, where most of the uh, land is unpopulated, but it is actually populated. So that's the Arab world. Now, the Mm. people of the Arab world speak Arabic as a first language. And what that means is that you can tell a joke in Oman and understand it and laugh at it in Morocco. Yeah. Yesterday, I received a WhatsApp message from my Mauritanian friend, uh, Aya, who we oh, met uh, yeah, at, uh, <laughs> uh, at the restaurant. And Aya uh, said, Yusuf, there is a tune stuck in my brain, but I don't know which song it is. So she, she sang it, she hummed it. And then I said, oh, yeah, this song is Da Da Da, which is a Mauritanian asking Palestinian about an Egyptian song. Yeah, it's wa- so that it's is wild. that is the, the interconnectedness of the Arab mm. world and Arabic language. So, in addition to this, there are Arabic-speaking people who live in non-Arab countries, like, for example, Niger, in Africa, Mali, Senegal, and other parts. Not to mention the Arab diaspora, like the Arabic-speaking community of Melbourne, uh, of Australia, the Arabic-speaking community of North Af- North America and Europe. Yeah. So we are around four hundred million. It's speakers so of Arabic language. So incredible. that is the Arabs who speak the, the, the language. And of course, the language itself uh, evolved over more, n- nearly 2,000 years. Uh, the oldest traces of Arabic language dates to uh, something like 2,000 years from pre-Islamic time to Islam. And then Quran came and gave the language a boost, meaning that you know the language of Quran, the language of the Holy Script was in Arabic. And then... Then this, the Muslim state endorsed this language and then became the language of the state. Yeah. So when the Islamic, when Islam expanded in the first 50 years in the late uh, six, uh, seventh century, the, the political expansion meant 
a language expansion. So that's why Arabic has become a little bit standardized compared to other countries. Yeah, it's so interesting also. I think it, the from a Western perspective, all those nuances of the Arabic language and the shared cultural references, I think, is completely lost because it's mm. quite simplified down to one you know, perspective of what an Arabic-speaking country or person would be like, but there's so, the backgrounds are so varying. I take it for granted because I grew up in, um, in Arab countries and it's okay, it's natural to see a Syrian and Sudanese and uh, North, um, North African. But then I learned, I trained myself to stop taking things for granted, especially when I started working in language yeah. uh, acquisition. Uh, and then I always put myself in the shoes of my own, my students who really want to acquire the language, but they come from, let's say, English-speaking cultures mm. like Australia, uh, where, yes, English is the, the most, uh, the biggest language in the world, but there are not as many countries that speak it. So yeah. the dynamic is different. I like to use a word said by Edward Said, the Palestinian academic, who uh, described the language as athletic. Arabic language is athletic. Really? It is very flexible. It can be the language of holy script to law, to uh, drama, to jokes, to imagination. It is really uh, a flexible language. And I really encourage your audience, Olivia, to explore uh, what it means to speak this language. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be an easy journey, as, as you know. I can vouch for that. But <laughs> it is a rewarding journey. Yeah, no, even in my however many years at Melbourne University studying with you, it definitely blew my socks off in terms of the richness. And, mm. you know, I think also a language like Arabic, a lot of the sort of allure about it is also the fact that it's a completely different alphabet to the English mm -hmm. language. So yep. it makes it a lot harder right to, to access. Right to left. Connected letters. Yeah. yeah. So everything is different. The, the vowels visual. then disappear after you yep. know the language well enough. But it's phonetic. Yeah. Which means that what you say is what you write pretty much. For example, in English, the sound sh, sh, you can produce it by SH, like for example, you say shoe, my shoes, or TIO, like nation, or SSIO, like association, or CIA, like facial, or, and then the list continues. Yeah, so it's actually harder to. In Arabic, sheen, tick, 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 that's it. One representation yeah. of one sound. Bismillah. Pretty much exclusive, <laughs> exclusive representation of yeah. sounds, and that makes the journey of learning these sounds, learning this language, a little bit easier from a purely phonetic point of view. Yeah. Well, we do have areas of struggle, like, for example, the cases mm. or conjugations. These grammatical terms might, might sound, even in English, as like horrible. But be, uh, having a phonetic language is a bless. I mean, I say this because I, I learned uh, English as a second language. Yeah. And it was a nightmare. I, we struggle. We struggle. Like everyone who spoke English, really who struggled. learned English, yeah. it wasn't an easy journey. I follow some of those funny Instagram pages that are like 
how it is, you know, sort of like things about languages and like what it's like to learn English as a foreigner. Mm. And they sometimes just break down examples of the <laughs> wilder stuff. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that would be so difficult to learn. Exactly. Like if you, you know, weren't brought up speaking the language. I want to give one small, small example of a Tunisian sure. philosopher who learned Arabic in the 40s at the hands of his Orientalist French teacher. Oh, that, um, so, that brings me to a new topic, that yeah, Orientalism. But from a language point of view, his French teacher came to the university mm-hmm. and wrote or drew on the, on, on the whiteboard this square root sign. <gasps> And he said, what is this? So his students were, well, that's mathematics. That is a square root sign. What we call in Arabic, and he said, no, this is your language. It's Arabic. Use the same box in your brain that you use for mathematics to learn grammar. It's, yeah, as, lo- it's as logical. It's absolutely the same, I think, grammar and maths. And- so g- Arabic grammar is logical. The room for exceptions is very small. Mm. There is a reason why this is accusative or nominative or genitive. There is a reason. It's like, honestly, my experience of learning Turkish, I know they're completely different, but the thing they have in common is that it's phonetical. So you read what's there. Yeah. Which really helps when you're learning something as foreign as, you know, Turkish or Arabic. In terms of the, the grammar structure, it's like a little a little blessing. Correct. And Turkish and Arabic are interconnected in different ways. Yeah. But that's another topic. That's that's for podcast number three with Yusuf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as well as Persian and Arabic and, yeah. and Urdu and Arabic and these um, non-Arab Muslims who embraced Islam and, and, and kept continued to talk their languages. But because of Islam and the vocabulary... Got enriched. Enriched, yeah. yeah. Um, but they, although they are from different origin, like Indo-European origin, yeah. we are Semitic origin, but the interconnectedness uh, is very high. Yeah, it really, I find it so incredible. Like even when I'm in Istanbul and I work with these women who are from Uzbekistan and they work in textiles and they speak to me in like a really old-fashioned Turkish Ooh. because of obviously the Soviet Union. So they obviously speak Russian as well. What um, about Azerbaijan? I want to Azerbaijan ask as well. Because I, I saw a famous pop uh, song. Uh, yeah. I, I thought it's Turkish and then I realised it's Azeri yeah. song. But a lot of them speak Turkish. Yeah. And so, but just Is the accent's Turkish different. Yeah. Different? And I just thought... Yeah, it's a bit different. Like the the way they speak is different, different accent. But I just that blew my mind that I could go to Azerbaijan and and speak, speak Turkish. Turkish there. I just sorry, I'm throwing questions at you. I should be. Uh, oh no, this is good. Yeah, this is just how we would have a conversation of on course, the phone. Of course, like when I called you, I think to talk about Turkish music a few weeks ago. Yes, and then you sent me your <laughs> Turkish clarinet music. So. I have to Lots say that fun. also being uh, a person who loves music, there is a, ho- a whole horizon that I discovered recently from playing on a keyboard that has Turkish styles. Yeah. I've never played on an organ that has Turkish styles as uh, like this one. Like so the, the instruments, you mean? The instruments, the, uh, the beats. Mm. The rhythms, mm-hmm. 
And to have this kind of Arabic melodies on Turkish side, it was a completely new horizon. Yeah. No, I love Turkish music. Even the really old-fashioned sort of arabesque, as they call it, yeah. style, I just love. And then particularly, there are parts of their beats that they call oriental. Yeah. Or like, this is us, you know, this is their talking, this is Arab, yani. Yeah. So the, the Arabic beats from Turkish lenses. Yeah. Even, even playing what I think I know from somebody else's perspective yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Because it's not the same. We really have to go to Istanbul together, I think. Or yes. Or just Turkey, anyway. Not in winter. No, no, no. no summer. No. I think the dream is summer in Australia, summer oh. over there. It's the long-term Fabulous. dream. Fabulous. So the name of your show, Palestine Remembered, it's on 3CR. Correct. Um, seems through its name to recognise the importance of history and who is writing it. Mm-hmm. By remembering Palestine, even contemporary events you have a hand in writing its history from the untold perspective. Um, what importance does the telling of history have to you? It's history, but also co- uh, contemporary, mm. meaning that when you remember something, it's either because time has touched it in a way that, you know, has pushed it away from our immediate uh, recalling, or there is an interference from a third party mm. that pushes this topic away. Yeah. So remembering Palestine is to remember the, the history, the culture, but also to remember the voice of current Palestinians who seems to be pushed away from our conversations in Australia, in English particularly. And I learned yeah. this when I moved to Australia in 2003. You know, like any other migrant, you come with hopes, expectations, uh, stereotypes, and then you learn it your way. Mm. And then you start rectifying your um, perspectives as you go. One of the things that I uh, was not very surprised is I knew that Australia, uh, the mainstream, the mainstream representation of Palestine is not as accurate as we, we, we hope it would be. Yeah. But it was more than I could handle, meaning that I was reading The Age and they were talking about Lebanon in the context of Israel-Lebanon yeah. tension. And then they referred to Lebanon as the same size of Victoria. So that's a factual error. It's not even an opinion. So Lebanon is 10,000 square kilometers. Victoria is more than 200,000 square kilometers. So even when it comes to Middle East, there seems to be some, you don't take it seriously as anything. You know, you yeah. have to apply some editorial Check. So that was a small example that made me, not, not to mention, of course, the bias against the Palestinians. Yeah, in, always. Uh, so it was born from that as a response to the misrepresentation, the less representation mm. of Palestine-related news in Australian media. And I was, you know, it was nice. And, you know, when you, when, you, when you migrate to a country, you have a little bit of naive, you know. Okay, that's it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm like, really? How? And then yeah, we're going to change the world. We're going to change the world. I, I think it's good if we all start thinking like I that. I like though. this attitude. I wouldn't have done it now with all the knowledge I have. But I was like, okay, I really want to change. I have to do something about it. And to cut a long story short, that was Palestine remembered. So that what you just, um, the anecdote you gave about the, the wrong fact in the age really reminds me of something I learned about recently, actually in relation to 
the COVID vaccine because of all the crazy stuff out there on the internet about how they're trying to kill us, etc. But anyway, um, explained in this post I read or an article, I can't remember. Oh, no, it was a Vice documentary actually about the difference between misinformation and disinformation, which I found... Like really interesting because misinformation can be innocent. You just innocent, make error. Yeah, just a little error, or yeah. you read something maybe misinterpreted. Disinformation, there is a deliberate. deliberate. So I guess that leads me, without wanting to get too heavy, but I guess if we don't get heavy on the podcast, where will we get? Heavy? Yeah, let's get heavy. Do you think that a lot of the information that is wrong is misinformation or disinformation in the case of Palestine? I would say it is a combination of disinformation yeah. and self censorship. Right. And uh, self-censorship is a, is a status that was created by intimidating others mm. who dared to speak Palestine. So if, if, let's say there is now a recent book by uh, uh, an ABC uh, journalist, John Leons. Uh, he, uh, John wrote a book called Balcony Over Jerusalem as a memoir of his journey as a correspondent for the ABC in Palestine slash Israel. So that book was a personal memoir, but the attack on uh, the content of the book is really big uh, because there is a little bit of sympathy to the Palestinian narrative and their aspirations of statehood and independence and end of occupation and the difficulties that they go through. So even something as simple as this, it receives so much intimidation so that other journalists think twice, think three times before saying something Mm. as simple or more or less. So that, that is self-censorship. Even it, something as simple in that case as his opinion. He's, a, he's, he's not a that's policy his reflection. maker. So, yeah. This is, I was there, I spent years in Jerusalem, and that's mm. what I have seen. As simple as that. Even something as a personal reflection, it could open up doors. You it know? shows like a very, very deep subliminal bullying exactly. in the system. Exactly, bullying, that, intimidation, and that mm. accumulated since 1948, and of course... Onward, and, yeah. and, and there are, of course, the peaks in the 50s, 60s, 70s, onward. So, so without going through the other examples, there is a combination of uh, self-censorship and uh, disinformation, but also there is an editorial bias by mm-hmm. the institution itself. So the Australian, for example, the Palestine-related news are, are always against us. Mm. Um, even when, if, when it comes to simple things that the international law agrees on. Like, for example, it is very rare to see somebody advocating for Israel's expansions of settlers and settlements in the West Bank, because that is the, supposed to be the future state of mm. Palestinians. So expanding the settlements is against international law, is against Australian law, is against you know UN resolutions, but nevertheless you find some someone somewhere in our media advocating for Israel's right, right. I mean the word right between brackets, to expand the settlers, the the, the, the settlements on stolen land, on yeah. stolen Palestinian land. So that is the level of predetermined bias against uh, against Palestine. So, so not to mention when there are tension, like for example, what we call the second intifada, first intifada, the violence, Uh, then you have the editorial policy of how do we refer to the victims from both sides. The sentence, if there is a a victim in Israel, then it is the subject of the nominal sentence. 
one Israeli, and then if it's the third Palestinian uh, terrorist kill, you know, when, when, when the victim's in our side, then it is in the passive voice. A Palestinian was killed. Yeah. Mm. Who killed us? Nobody knows, according to... Yeah, the, gra- the grammar is the grammar, the structure the of the brain. sentence, but also the terminology. So instead of, instead of using occupation or occupied land, they might use disputed territories. Instead mm. of referring to the separation wall, which is much taller than Berlin Wall, they refer to it as security fence. Instead of, instead of referring to settlements, they refer to it as neighborhood. So, so something like, you know, peaceful and nice, like uh, 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 Bendigo uh, community yeah. neighborhoods, you know? It is a settlement on stolen land. Yeah. It is highly militarized. Yeah. Uh, so it's all about terminology, not to mention um, the military uh, terminology. So in general, in Australia, it is an extension of the pro-Israel lobby in America and Canada, but in smaller uh, sense. But the result is the same, anti-Palestinian. But it's so interesting because it doesn't, I think, for your average Australian who's maybe not so well-versed on the topic, they're going to be inadvertently... Influenced yeah. Yeah. by the grammar because that's what grammar is. It's to exactly. get a point across. Exactly. So that's what I find worrying. Like there's going to be people that don't agree with me on multiple issues, but I think you've got to give people the choice to to understand the facts without being pushed down a you know a rabbit hole of exactly like, bias. That's why I, I always say that I give credit to a station like 3CR. Mm. An Australian institution that give voice to voiceless yeah. communities, voiceless people. You don't have this voice elsewhere in, uh, in mainstream media. And that's before podcast people like you who give us voice. But imagine in 2004, it's only radio uh, yeah. or printed media or uh, television. Mm. Uh, where else do you go to, to talk in English about Palestine? There's, there's nowhere. Not, there's, there's honestly nowhere. nothing. Like even That's lately what, when everything was flaring up again mm. and everything going on in Lebanon, for example, mm. currently, I'm always asking myself where to read. Because mm. even Al Jazeera is quite censored, I would say. Al Jazeera, at the end of the day, it's Qatari funded. So they have their, their editorial. However, they are better than the rest in, different, in, in, in many ways. But uh, 3CR stood out. It gave not just the Palestinians a voice. Any, I mean, the, I remember how you, uh, the, their proposal. You just need to establish the argument that you are going to talk about a cause that is absent elsewhere. Mm. And Palestine, you don't, that's it, we know. Thank you very much. Pa- Palestine was like, full was stop. Like, I was like prepared to, to, to give them seven pages of reasons. No, you were like... Then, okay, خلص, 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 Yusuf. خلص, just one They didn't say خلص in Arabic. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was yeah. easy to, to convince. But um, I want to give them credit. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's really wonderful. The only problem with that is that that's also so niche that it's Very not going to get into the, the corners of the population mm. that listen to the Herald Sun. And Look, I think over, over 16 or 15, or more years of doing the show, I remember one day having to go to the hospital in the morning for my leg brace, and I took a taxi. 
in the time when my program was aired, because the program is, the, is morning. And people who know me, like yourself, know that I avoid morning appointments. I do. <laughs> That's why we're recording in the afternoon <laughs> now. So I pre-record my show the night before and leave the show, upload it on the server, and then I never listen to the show live. But that day, I did because I was in a taxi and the guy was listening anyway. So I didn't want to just tell him, hello, this is me. And um, I said, so what is this? I said, oh, the, he was an Australian white Anglo driver. And he said, there's nowhere else I could listen to Palestinian news. This guy is doing good job and I like the music. Because also, in addition to Palestine, I was playing also... Did you hyperventilate? I was like, oh my God, can you please sign for me? You were like... <laughs> the other way around. You were like... A Fan, finally. Yeah, you're like, I want your autograph. I want your autograph, yeah. Can I take a picture? <laughs> uh, before selfies. So anyway, at the end I said, uh, I just want to tell you that this is me. I, Did I am, he? I, I told him... He's what, like April Fool's? He didn't take the money. He really refused to be paid. Oh, that's so nice. He said, you, that's it. I'm paid. Keep, keep up doing the good job. Wow, yeah. So things like this make you continue. I don't know if there are many people like him, but it doesn't matter. If you do is, it for him. For him is enough. Yeah, that's such a nice story. And then I, I, I came back home with uh, 10 more dollars in my pocket. <laughs> because it was, it was from Richmond to St. Vincent, not very long. Okay, I was going to say. I should have gone good, to Frankston. Like, all right, we're going to go to the beach. Uh, we're yeah. going for a, for a day trip. Yeah, but $10 is good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, so if he's listening, I don't know his name, I'm telling your story. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I hope he's listening. So what do you think are some things that people overlook about Palestine? Like, media aside, what do you think some of the things that, if you took me to Palestine, what would surprise me? Many things, I would say. And I say this as a person who's never been to Palestine. Yeah. But as I, I claim that I know enough. In your soul. In, in my soul. So I think you will be surprised from people's determination to look for happiness and to live a normal life. Mm. People's determination to, to also sarcasm and comedy, which is uh, not going to be a surprise to you because you've been to the region. Mm. It's going to be similar. We have our, our, uh, our sense of humor that is a little bit dry but still funny. People's willingness to embrace life despite the occupation in yeah. West Bank, despite the ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem, despite the siege in Gaza, despite the marginalization of Palestinian Israelis, despite the denial of return to people like me, the refugees, we find pockets of happiness in our daily life. And you might be surprised because how do you manage to smile if you continuously or to just live a, an ordinary life, if you are continuously over and over and over again subjugated to injustice for now more than 73 years? Yeah. So, but it's also, you will love the food. Oh. The food is unmatched in Palestine, particularly Jerusalem. Yeah. And I say this because Jerusalem is next door to Ramallah and Beit Lahem. 
there is a particular bread, kak they call it, in Jerusalem. That if you go to Ramallah, it's like, ah, oh, it's not the same. Even, even, even from Jerusalem to Ramallah, it's not the same. And how many kilometers are we that's, talking? That's, that's less, than, less than 30, 30 <laughs> kilometers. I love that. So f- this, is, this is the richness and diversity of the, in, the, the Palestinian cuisine that is even within the same small geography, it changes. So you will not find, and I say this because there are people who talk about it yeah. now. And even the people in Ramallah, they say, well, we don't do it as good, but we try. The kanafa, kanafa. Don't bring that up with me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> on a Friday afternoon. Now, now I regret bringing it up because now I feel like one. Yeah. So the kanafa, the home of kanafa is Nablus, the city, uh, the Palestinian city of Nablus. If you go to Nablus and eat kanafa there, that's it. You are damaged for life. You're not going to enjoy Kunafe anywhere else. We're going to do a little exercise. Explain. So I'm going to say kunafe because that's how they say it in Turkey. Kunafe in Arabic. Yeah. Explain kunafe to our listeners. Oh, that's tough for me. Why? People often ask me, like, how would you explain it? Okay. You're going to help me with, you are going to help me with vocabulary because while I'm an an interpreter and uh, a translator, I translate uh, sociology, politics, religion, children, but literature. Food is different, I know. When it comes to simple things, I sometimes get mixed up between uh, goat and, uh, so, sorry, uh, lamb and beef. That's so, fine. So you, you're going to help me. Well, We're going to sell Kunafe to the listeners. Okay. Let's, uh, and, and Yusuf is the, uh, the advertisement. Okay. God help us. <laughs> All right. Kunafe is, first, the base is cheese. Yeah. And it has to be goat cheese. Uh, for a reason, cow uh, milk isn't uh, good enough. Right. So you have to have the goat cheese, and then uh, you put the. Now you're gonna help me with angel the, hair pasta. Thank God for uh, <laughs> Olivia. <laughs> this is joint. You put joint this, work. and then there is a particular color that it get, it acquires, which is orange, and then by just warming or heating the cheese, and then things become inseparable. I know, it's like they the, get the married. White, yeah, they get married, and then you add, you finally add the sugar syrup. Yeah. So it's, if you are on diet, it's not for you, no. but bad luck. So I've got this friend in Istanbul. So they, in, I don't know how they serve it in, well, I guess everywhere in the Arab world it's served differently. Mm-hmm. But in Istanbul, my friend Ismail will aggressively feed me kunafe every time I'm in his, he's an antique dealer. And it's cooked over coals, so it's sort of, it's yeah. got that crispy Yeah, coals, kunafe is also... Yeah, and they serve it with pistachio, like, on top. I forgot that, sorry. Oh, that's okay. I'd like to apologize for every kunafe lafar who, <laughs> who were very unhappy with my introduction of kunafe. I am not the right person. No, you've sold it already, I'm sold. Oh, thank you. I would buy your kunafe. Thank you. And then it's served, and sometimes they serve it with this cream called kainak, which is like the thickest clotted cream. Yeah. I'm like, my mouth is like... We call it kishta. How do you call it? But that's too creative. Oh, you just like it plain? Like, yeah, we call it blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, don't go very far. <gasps> no, no, just do it with cheese. 
keep it simple. Mm. I've seen uh, Lebanese, I mean, add, which is nice. I love it. I mean, that, that's my only choice. They're all my cousins choice. anyway. The, Knafa. the cousins of Knafa. But uh, you have to add another adjective if you want to be creative. Because if you just say Knafa, then I'm, my brain goes to Nablus. But then you say Lebanese knafe, then I'm more tolerant. Okay. Turkish knafe, yeah, that's fine. That's we'll fine. take, we'll go have a kunafe soon. I think it's time. Yes, yes, yes. In Turkey, last point of kunafe before we <laughs> yes. bore everybody before with our little the obsession. Um, there's a family size one. It's like the biggest kunafe you've ever seen. It's like a pizza. How do they serve it in uh, like... Uh, in the uh, So the serve uh, is, is about 200 grams less more estimation. I'd say so. They're quite, yeah. I mean, they're a lot. The standard serve uh, is 250. Yeah. Unless you, you ask for that? half of it. Right. Yeah. So we call it uqiya, which is an old word for quarter of a kilo. I love that. So if you don't say anything, then they'll give you this. Uh, this is the standard unit serve is uqiya uh, or uh, I'd love 250. that here. Like I just want a little bit. But then you go, you, if you say half of it or uh, some people will go more than that. They go yeah, one yeah. and a half. Yes, yes. Um, in Istanbul, you can order like they say az chorba, which means like a little bit of soup. soup. Yeah. So, but, so they'll bring you rather than the big bowl, they'll just bring like... Half of a bowl of soup, and I'm like, that's ah. such an elegant, like concept, the, you know, like this, this is this is you, you know, this kind of uh, as torba, yeah, like <laughs> the elite, the elite uh, Ottomans, <laughs> which uh, for a reason you remind me of them. I but, think it's just because I imitate funny yeah, things. Yeah, you are, you are so good. You are so <laughs> the nobleties. Really? Yeah. I don't know if you, you saw me in the Grand Bazaar of Turkey, you would think. That I'm an old Turkish, like, grumpy farmer. Yeah, in Okay, well, disguise. I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge. <laughs> but judging you from the Arabic soap opera, so you fit that category. Maybe that's my next move in life. I'll just get yes. on those soap operas. Yes, yes. So I'd like to talk about Arabic literature because obviously that's such an incredible and very rich world. Can you suggest, like, I'd like to talk about your favorite Arabic literature but then I'd like you to suggest to finish off a your favorite Arabic poem thank you for the question um, I grew up in a house of literature my father is a poet he wrote poetry since he was 16 and I woke up today with an email of his last poem because he always sent me his poems for language checkup so this is something very dear to my heart that my father my role model, the poet, is sharing his uh, writings with me before he shows it to anyone else. That's so nice. So that is the upbringing. And I remember my first relation with classical Arabic or what we call fusha. You know that word? Yes. Is when dad uh, was, uh, because of my disability, my father uh, kept carrying me for up until I was six years old until I was able to uh, be more independent. And then my brother Firas helped me a little bit. He, I was leaning against his shoulder. So every time we will go somewhere or from somewhere back home, so carrying me for a few steps, he will be making up poems for me, just, you know, 
improvising literature. So that is my first introduction of Arabic language before I was even six. Uh, so grow up, growing up in a house of literature, it makes you first understand that there is another level of language. Mm. The second is start enjoying the metaphors, understanding the metaphor, the symbols. And, and that's not, not easy for a child. Yeah. But then you grow up in the time of the Palestinian revolution and Palestine, and then you know that there are po- poets like Mahmoud Darwish, Tawfiq Zayyad, Samih Al-Qasim, or what the, uh, the rest of Arabs call the poets of resistance. This is a movement that the Palestinians spearheaded in 60s, 70s, and 80s. And they mm-hmm. became the voice of all Arabs seeking freedom, even against their own dictators. Yeah, So they created that platform. And Mahmoud Darwish stood out, uh, one of the most influential figures. I am deeply influenced by Mahmoud Darwish, who lived from 1943 to 2008. And... Uh, Darwish uh, was more than just a poet. He was a poet, a journalist, a politician. When, when Darwish and Yasser Arafat, they both started working together. So this duetto, they formed our political Arafat and intellectual identity for so long. Mm. So this, this two, the, the, the man of the revolution and the poet... Yeah. Together, they made the revolution more accessible yeah. and more beautiful. But he was, I always stress that Darwish was more than a poet. He was also, uh, now we believe that what he said, what he wrote, came to be true, even though that it was not comfortable. We were not comfortable listening to it. For example, um, coexistence with Jews uh, in the time where we couldn't un- differentiate some Palestinians could not differentiate but between the peace loving Jews who do amazing work to expose Mm. the violations of human rights of their country and the soldiers yeah I mean in that situation it would be so difficult to so we couldn't see the difference but Darwish started to telling us about that his teachers you know he he was one of the pioneers of uh, talking to the peace camp inside Israel. So now we understand that he was right. So Darwish is one of the um, people of deep influence on me. And uh, I might recall one uh, poem. The poem is by Mahmoud Darwish, and it says, Ala ard, on this land. It was written in late 80s during the Palestinian First Intifada when Palestinian resisted in uh, peaceful uh, ways for statehood and for independence. And uh, the piece, the, this piece has become something like an anthem for most Palestinians, and it's widely known. And you will see it on graffitis, you will see it on T-shirts. Really? I mean, not to mention social media profiles and all that. So all 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 you need to say is on this land to a person who knows Palestine and they will know that you are talking about Mahmoud Darwish and wow. this poem. So I will recite it in Arabic. Ala hadhihi al-ardi ma yastahiq al-hayat 
تردد إبريل رائحة الخبز في الفجر تعويذة امرأة للرجال كتابات أسخيليوس أول الحب عشب على حجر أمهات تقفن على خيط ناي وخوف الغزاة من الذكريات على هذه الأرض ما يستحق الحياة نهاية أيلول سيدة تترك الأربعين بكامل مشمشها ساعة الشمس في السجن غيم يقلد سربا من الكائنات هتافات شعب لمن يصعدون إلى حتفهم باسمين وخوف الطغاة من الأغنيات على هذه الأرض ما يستحق الحياة على هذه الأرض سيدة الأرض أم البدايات أم النهايات كانت تسمى فلسطين صارت تسمى فلسطين سيدتي أستحق لأنك سيدتي أستحق الحياة On This Land by Mahmoud Darwish On this land there is what makes life worth living April's hesitation the aroma of bread at dawn a woman's prayer for men Aeschylus's writings the beginning of love grass on a stone mothers standing on the thread of a flute and the invaders fear of memories on this land there is what makes life both living september's end a woman leaving 40 in full bloom the hour of sunlight in prison a cloud reflecting a swarm of creatures a people's applause for those who face their own death with a smile and the tyrant's fear of songs on this land there is what makes life worth living on this land the lady of our land the mother of all beginnings and the mother of all ends she was called palestine her name later became palestine my lady because you are my lady i deserve life thank you beautiful well thanks um yusuf uh for being with us on the podcast I'm really hoping as well when we open the shop we can do some little events in store and maybe we could do a Q&A night with you for our Melbourne followers and we could talk about Arabic culture and literature and beautiful things like that. Maybe eat some kunafe. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you and to meet uh, Sultan and uh, to share with you and your audience uh, threads of uh, important things 
to me and to my people. And I say threads because in half an hour, it's very difficult to comprise uh, a topic that is as rich and and diverse like the Palestine uh, topic and the Arabic literature. But what we can do is we can give you threads. Footnotes, yeah. Then you can take them and God knows where it's going to lead. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. it is it is important to 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 share uh, this, and I thank you for this, uh, Olivia. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Yusuf. Shukran. Afwan. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Yusuf on the Cleopatra's Blink podcast. For more information on Yusuf, follow him on Twitter at our dome, and be sure to tune into Palestine Remembered on 3CR. I regularly run auctions for NGOs in the Arabic world via Instagram. So if you wish to support these, please follow on Instagram at Cleopatra's Bling. You can also check out the Black Sea Women's Collective Collection, which was made collaboratively with women in Turkey. All proceeds go back to these women and their education. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. The chefs were starting to request like specific items that we couldn't grow or you just couldn't get consistently foraged. So we went, why don't we start doing this? So we started with six little beds. From there, it's just two, three more beds here, two, three more beds there, and then we've got 30 beds now. Until next time, stay curious.